What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. Here is what's ahead of us. The U.S. giving China 72 hours to close its consulate in Houston that officials say was a hotbed of spying and cyber theft. A closer look at the market fallout and how China might fire back. Plus, billionaire investor Bill Ackman says he's bullish on America, but right now he's definitely cautious on this market. We'll tell you who he's most worried about this time. And Chipotle reports earnings, Spotify's mega music deal, and the device sports leagues are using to enforce social distancing. That's all ahead, but we do begin with today's markets, and for that we turn, as always, to Bob Bassani. Hi, Bob. Hello, Kelly. Uh, You know, it's amazing the markets are up. Considering we've got no immediate fiscal stimulus package coming, they're working on it. And all these China tensions, folks, you heard Kelly just talking about it. And one of the reasons we're holding up so well is just tech is doing well. So Microsoft's really helping uh, the Dow today. Their their earnings are going to be out shortly. Um, We've got... uh, Oil stocks generally weaker, bank stocks generally weaker. But look at the tech leaders, Microsoft and IBM, a good earnings report from them helping out. PayPal uh, up there, uh, Autodesk also doing very well here. The semiconductors, excellent earnings reports from Texas Instruments, big beat from them. They actually provided some guidance that was above expectations. Who's heard of that in a long time? Uh, so a good move uh, for Texas Instruments. It was at historic high yesterday. It's down a little bit today. If you look at some of those semiconductor stocks, uh, AMD at a new high. Teradyne also had very good report. NVIDIA, KLA, Tencore, almost every day NVIDIA is on the upside. The work from home stuff still doing well. Great report from Best Buy. No uh, reclosing concerns there. They have very good comments. Lowe's, O'Reilly, Home Depot also doing really well right now. And an excellent IPO. Very good market for IPOs recently. JAMF. Holdings, which is uh, in, uh, in pricing its initial offer at $26 today. Look at that, up 50% here. Uh, they do Apple enterprise management software. We'll talk in the next hour about how strong the IPO market has been. Guys, back to you. Yes, you've been hitting on that, Bob, and it is surprising. Uh, thank you so much. We'll see you soon. Bob Bassani with the latest okay. for us. Now to the U.S., ordering China to shut down its Houston consulate over charges of spying and intellectual property theft. The Chinese currency sharply lower as Beijing condemns the move and vows to retaliate. Eunice Yoon is live for us in Beijing with the very latest. Hi, Eunice. Hi, Kelly. Well, Beijing and Washington have both confirmed that the U.S. has ordered Beijing to close its consulate in in Houston. Uh, the uh, State Department has said that the reason is meant to protect American intellectual property and private information, though it didn't give any specifics. The Chinese Foreign Ministry, though, has described this as a political provocation and vowed countermeasures for what it described as an unprecedented escalation. Now, Chinese staff have until Friday to close shop, which from China's perspective explains a video that has emerged, which appears to show Chinese officials um, in a very rushed manner burning uh, several documents in open bins. Now, in response, uh, sources told Reuters that China is considering shutting the the, the consulate in uh, Wuhan, And Kelly, as you'd expect, there's been a lot of speculation as to what the motivations could be. 
、um, here in China、uh, by of the United States because of the lack of specificity、uh, in the State Department's allegations.、Um, there's a lot of speculation that this could be a political decision、uh, by President Trump to act as a trans、uh, distraction ahead of the November election. And then another popular theory has been that the U.S. is uh, uh, the U.S. is looking for a way to strong arm China. Into allowing more American diplomats back into the country, there have been several negotiations, rounds of negotiations, to try to get、uh, diplomats back, and、um, only some of them have been able to return. Yeah, they, a strange situation as it's widely being described, but a, a very important one. Yunus, thank you so much. Yunus Yun, live as I said in Beijing for us. Is this new escalation being underappreciated by the markets here, which are largely shrugging it off? And what about corporate America with its huge exposure to doing business in China? Joining me now, Dewardrick McNeil is founder and managing director at Longview Global, and David Riedel is president and founder of Riedel Research Group. It's great to have you here, Dewardrick. I'll start with you because I was borrowing your language when you described the whole situation as strange. But the charges are pretty troubling. I mean, when you have a standing senator saying this place was a hotbed of spying and intellectual property theft, I mean, how do we allow it to go on for this long? Well, thank you for having me, Kelly. Listen, I, I do believe that this should be taken seriously. To、uh, have a, a country close its entire consulate and only give them three days to do so、uh, suggests to me that uh, intelligence uh, is uh, strong. That there was something、uh, nefarious going on at the consulate、uh, in Houston. Now, I will say. That burning documents at a consulate isn't necessarily nefarious. What's strange, <laughs> and I come back to that, is that the Chinese were doing this outside in the dark in the courtyard. So、right. one would expect that there would be better ways to、uh, to do this than than being outside in the courtyard. But but let me just say that I think, with respect to what the Chinese are likely to do,、uh, it is true that they have already said they they will exercise countermeasures. And I think targeting the Wuhan consulate. Is a signal that they're not prepared to go to the nuclear option and close down a place like Shanghai or perhaps Chengdu. And what we know about Wuhan, the epicenter、uh, of the coronavirus、uh, for the Chinese,、right. is that there was already a skeletal staff in place in Wuhan because we extracted our diplomats from Wuhan. Uh, back during the start of the coronavirus, David, I'll turn to you. So, if China does say not only、uh, potentially closing Wuhan, even if they did threaten some of the larger, more important consulates and embassies, what would the practical implication of that be, and how might the U.S. then respond? Well, unfortunately, it feels like it's developing into a bit of a tit for tat. We've had discussions of、uh, the, the U.S. taking a very firm stand on the South China Sea recently for the first time.、Uh, two U.S. Air,、uh, aircraft carriers in the South China Sea. Uh, in recent weeks, you had a lot of talk about TikTok and other Chinese companies. One's listed in the U.S. and other and other places. So、uh, this is, I think, just a tit for tat exchange. It's not dissimilar to the closing of the Russian consulate in San Francisco back in 2017,、uh, again where they they burned documents. So I'm not actually too concerned about the 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 way, where we're headed on the consulates. It makes it a little 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 harder to do business, a little harder for、uh, one's citizens in that country to to get the services that they need, but. Uh, the the really big issues are、uh, South China Sea, Huawei, uh, and uh, the ability to invest、uh, through Hong Kong. Those are the big issues, not the consulates. And Dewardrick, you say you know 
look, expect more uh, on decoupling. But, you know, if you're a business in the U.S. who's in biomedical and coronavirus research, this is a wake up call. You have to protect your information. You know, but at the same time, we have this big announcement from Starbucks yesterday that they're partnering with Alibaba and, and expanding their network of products and availability into the Chinese market. Is anything that we're describing here the kind of thing that would make a company like Starbucks or like Apple rethink its coexistence with the Chinese market? I think most companies are really looking at their exposure and trying to figure out uh, where this, where the U.S.-China long-term competition is heading. And so I think companies have to take this seriously. It doesn't mean that you can't find a way to do legitimate business. But uh, to your point, if you're in the biomedical space or if you're, ex- for example, looking uh, for a vaccine for the coronavirus, I mean, you really have to take seriously that this is a competition space. It wasn't always that way. There was a time when pandemic disease control and mitigation was a cooperative space for the U.S. and China. Uh, We're far beyond that now. And so companies in this particular sector have to be prepared to know your partners and know your clients and protect your data. Uh, Both uh, FBI Director Christopher Wray, uh, Attorney General Barr, uh, and the National Security Advisor, Mr. O'Brien, have indicated that the U.S. is extremely serious about stopping what they believe to be uh, Chinese espionage, particularly as it relates to the vaccine. Uh, This has become a real serious issue, and companies should take it seriously. But again, I think that there is a way, there should be a way, for businesses to continue to do business without getting uh, caught in this in this in this trap between the U.S. and China and yeah. the, their long term competition. David, real quickly before we have to go, I think it's interesting to given everything that we're describing and the, and the potential for more back and forth, the China's weakening currency and so forth. You are looking at it as a potentially an attractive investment opportunity. Tell me where uh, and why in a nutshell. It is a good investment. They're coming out of COVID better than a lot of people. They've got a lot of great resources uh, at their disposal. The problem is, how do you get there? If, if, US, if China, U.S. listed Chinese companies are under pressure and Hong Kong's under pressure, um, what's the way to get it? Maybe you buy U.S. tech companies that provide good exposure there. But I'd be very careful of Starbucks and others. Those are high-profile American targets if nationalism ticks up. Sure, but at the same time, they employ a lot of Chinese as well. You know, they, they, they feel increasingly intertwined. We'll leave it there, guys, for now, but I'm sure we'll talk more about this. David Riedel, DeWardrick McNeil, appreciate your thoughts on the latest moves between U.S. and China. U.S. stocks are largely shrugging off these tensions and again pinning their hopes on the positive vaccine news. A deal on continued stimulus is also in the works. The belief that reopening is still picking up some steam. Is this all a smart strategy for investors to rely on? I'm joined by Jeff Crumpleman, chief investment strategist at Mariner Wealth Advisors, and Jerry Castellini is chief investment officer at Castle Arc Management. Jerry, let me just start with you. You know, are you comfortable investing in the market with as strong a momentum as it's had with as big as tech has become a piece of it? You know, what do you think investors need to do right now? Well, the biggest thing right now is to focus on how important the Fed's pinning of interest rates below one percent is and what it really means ultimately to valuation. And to that question, I would say, given if we're comfortable with that, and I, I don't have any reason to believe we shouldn't be, you have a big valuation upside that still sits behind you with this entire market and specifically the leaders themselves. If, if you're focused on the companies that have the highest visibility and the highest probability of earning their forward estimates, boy, we still have a ways to go. It's just the nature of uh, low, low interest rates on valuations in general. And there's several big names uh, in the market that still have big upside from here. 
Jeff, Bill Miller, who is one of the people who is bullish on the market at the lows and told us about that, um, came out with his recent quarterly update where he said he's still bullish. He thinks that much like 2009, this is just the beginning of what could be a multi-year run for stocks. You know, what if that's the case, you know, especially if it's because of Fed support with valuations in some of these big companies as big as they are right now? Um, do you feel comfortable betting on the S&P broadly or would you be looking at tactical opportunities? Well, uh, we do like tactical opportunities. And, you know, everyone makes a, a big point out of, oh, this has been a narrow market. It's all about FANG. And it's true that they've done very well. But we found broadly within technology, for example, uh, names like Salesforce, Splunk, 2.6, even names like Visa, and growth and growth cyclicals, Lululemon. I've, I've spent more at Lululemon during this COVID situation than I ever thought I would. And you've got 20% growth in its main categories. So we find a number of opportunities that are non-fang with secular growth drivers. And the market is in this transitory period being supported by Fed, by fiscal stimulus. And I think we're finding just by these earnings reports, it ain't great. It's not stellar, but it certainly is better than fear. We saw it in Best Buy. We see it in Lowe's. Even J&J came out with uh, their medical device uh, area that was down 9%. It was expected to be down 30%. Hmm. So I think better than feared will keep us in along with what's going on. And we do need to see some additional stimulus to carry us forward right in here as COVID starts to to spread just a little bit greater than maybe anticipated. But yeah. no, th that's to keep us in. And we have a 3,500 price target on the S&P for mid-2021 that I think we're prepared to take up. Yeah. Uh, if some good news flow continues. Jerry, we got to go. I don't know if you're also wearing Lululemon right now, but your names include Lamb Research, Home Depot, MasterCard, to name a few, right? That's right. These are just, these are duopolies. Focus on companies that have very little competition, have very visible earning streams, and, and take Lamb because they're the uh, arms merchant to the semiconductor. Take Home Depot, as we talked, you know, there's, there's really no alternative in the pro space and, and in home DYI. And finally, you know, MasterCard is winning the war on cash. <laughs> and understand that war has been going on for a long time, and along with Visa. Uh, these guys got a long running room, and that's, that was going back to my point, yeah. that you really want to have those kind of visible companies that have much bigger earnings expansion and, and valuation coming. All right. Thank you both. We appreciate it today. Jerry Castellini and Jeff Crumpleman. Now we've got a news alert. Speaking of Apple, Josh Lipton is here with some news for us. Josh, what's happening? That's right, Kelly. So on Monday, remember, Apple CEO Tim Cook, along with other big tech executives from Amazon, Google, Facebook, going to testify before this House Judiciary Committee um, as part of this antitrust investigation. You would expect for Cook, lawmakers could have plenty of questions about his app store in particular. Does that store limit choice and competition? Just now, Apple releasing a new study commissioned from the analysis group defending that store and that 30 percent cut it can take, arguing that commission rate is largely in line with other app stores and digital marketplaces like the Google Play Store, the Amazon App Store. In other words, arguing that commission rate is not out of line with the rest of, of the market. For Apple investors, remember, this is all critical. The App Store is a big part of that higher, that faster-growing, higher-margin uh, services segment. Remember, the questions aren't just here in Washington. The EU is also investigating the App Store, so we'll see what Cook has to say on Monday. Kelly, back to you. All right, Josh. Thank you. Josh Lipton with the new detail there. Coming up, 
up billionaire investor Bill Ackman betting against companies with too much debt, saying don't count on the Fed to bail them out. A closer look at what he says that'll do to the markets. Plus, retail will never be the same and brands can no longer depend on malls and department stores. A dire new note on the sector. And it's hard to social distance in sports, but the NFL and NBA are trying it with a new device. What it does and whether it can work ahead. This is The Exchange on CNBC. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome back. Bill Ackman joined the gang on Squawk Box this morning for the first time since its highly talked about interview on Halftime back in March. He wanted to talk about his new move into the world of SPACs and also to clear the air on his much publicized comments that hell was coming. Andrew Ross Sorkin joins me now. Andrew, it was a quite a lively conversation this morning. Uh, thanks, Kelly. It was. Uh, it's always a lively conversation with Bill. Of course, Bill Ackman's blank check company, Pershing Square, uh, Tantan Holdings, Tantine Holdings, is the largest SPAC to date. And that's why he came on. The date selling 200 million units of a Class A stock for $20 each, looking to raise a total of $4 billion in the public market. Now, Ackman's hedge fund, Pershing Square Capital, will invest an additional $1 to $3 billion. So total, it could reach as high as $7 billion. And uh, he explained all of this. That was a 28-minute segment, and that was about a 15-second piece of it. And I want to remind people the message, and I encourage anyone to go watch it, which is I said, look, we're at a fork in the road. Uh, we haven't shut – at that point, by the way, we hadn't shut one state uh, in the country, right? It's March 18th where, you know, you see the compounding of the growth of the virus. And I said, look, one path is we do nothing. And if we do nothing – hell is coming. But I'm bullish. I'm buying stocks. Why? Because I believe the, the president, the government is going to shut down the country. And the, the answer is, we did something in the middle, which is, there wasn't what we were recommending was a 30 day hard shutdown of the country, you know, statewide, right? Every, every state in the country. And then a careful reopening. If you go back and watch, you know, what I said, had we done that, okay, we would not we would be in a much better position, you know, unfortunately, than we are now. Uh, that was a bit of a different clip, uh, but just to, to try to back into setting that up. Uh, clearly, Bill, Bill had made a comment back in March. It was highly publicized that hell was coming, uh, criticized for it uh, in certain quarters uh, for being overly pessimistic and others who uh, believe that he was, quote unquote, talking his book because he had a short position in the market at that time. He had disclosed that short position publicly uh, prior to that appearance, uh, but didn't discuss the short appear- that short position uh, on the air. Uh, what we did do, though, was ask him this time about his positions on the market today and also about what positions were in his, are in his book currently. Listen to what he had to say. We are bullish uh, on the country, um, but I would say I am cautious 
on markets over the next period of time. And uh, we, we have today a, a, you know, a short position in a high yield index. Uh, we are bearish on highly levered companies. To some extent, I view that as a, a hedge. I don't know whether we make money on it or not. Uh, but the highly levered businesses will struggle because it's going to take time for the economy to reopen. Um, but we are about 80%, uh, we've about 20% cash in our publicly traded entity. So uh, a bullish Bill Ackman with a bit of a hedge on some of the high yield, uh, high yield players in the market right now. An interesting take. And of course, pursuing this SPAC at a time when uh, SPACs, these blank check companies are seem to be remarkably popular. Yeah. Big issue in the marketplace is what does it mean to the IPO market? Uh, clearly, the IPO market appears to be either so broken or something else that something like this uh, would take its place or be as attractive uh, as it is. And then, of course, answering questions about uh, where we are in today's market. And uh, again, some of that criticism uh, that had yeah. been uh, uh, sent his way after that appearance. It was interesting, Andrew. So I went back and read the whole transcript uh, from what happened. And I think right. part of it is he was he was describing bunch of different scenarios and just doing so in such a dramatic way. You know, if you read the whole first page, you think hell is coming. And that's what he says. He says, if we don't do something at 18 months, you know, this right. whole country is going to be shut down. We're going to lose a number of industries. But when they were talking about Hilton stock, which he said could go to zero in that case, that's when Ackman pivoted and said, I got bullish. I've been aggressively buying right. stocks. He said, I bought Hilton today. I bought restaurant brands. I bought Starbucks. And he said, the whole country needs to sit at home watch Netflix and order Chipotle, as we've seen, that's basically exactly what's happened. Right. So, yes, there's, you know, well, that's we didn't say. neither one yeah. of those scenarios exactly came to pass. But I can understand people were tweeting. Remember, Mike Novogratz was tweeting before the interview ended. Get this guy off the air. He's scaring everybody. So right. there was something in no, it for people everyone. People were so emotional. People were so emotional about that interview. And I think that they people listen to what they I hate to say this and I uh, get criticized for saying this. I think people listened to what they wanted to listen to in that moment. I think if you as you if you go back and look at the transcript, uh, he said what he meant. And, you know, I had been talking to him prior to that, back in February even, and knew that he was short. He had been public and public and, and publicly disclosed that short position uh, in documents that were filed with the SEC and whatnot. So I know there's lots of conjecture about what was going on uh, during that period. But I think if you actually do go back and read the transcript or watch in its totality and really listen to what he was saying, he was closer to, um, yeah, he, to because, right than wrong. Because um, he was so concerned about are, COVID, yeah. you know, that's why he was saying we need this shutdown. Yep. Like, this is going to be really bad. Hell is coming in that regard. Um, anyway, it's almost like he needed right. a four point, you know, I don't know, a chart or something, uh, maybe for next time. But at least we've made it this far. Andrew, thank you so much. We appreciate yes. the update. Hey, thank you. Quick, quick plug. We are going to have Jay Clayton from the SEC on tomorrow. Um, and he's going to break down some news with us as well on Squawk, uh, Squawk Box. So uh, hope, hopefully uh, some of uh, your viewers will tune into that. Very good. We encourage them to. We'll see you then. Andrew, thank you. Thanks. Andrew Ross Sorkin. Coming up, a retail standout of nearly 90 percent since the March lows. Its online sales have tripled this quarter and remote learning could give it another boost this fall. The name and what sets it apart from the competition. Plus, Chipotle's on deck with earnings and the stock has been on fire. One analyst says she sees it rallying another 30 percent from here and she'll join me ahead. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The exchange is back in a couple. Canva presents Unexplained Appearances. 
It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back. Let's get to Sue Herrera for our CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. Another milestone in the coronavirus pandemic. Global coronavirus cases have now surpassed 15 million. That's according to the Johns Hopkins count. The U.S. accounts for roughly a quarter of those cases. Researchers are making some good progress in developing COVID-19 vaccines with many in late-stage trials. However, the first use of these vaccines cannot realistically be expected until early 2021. That is according to the World Health Organization's Executive Director of Emergency Programs, Mike Ryan. And on Capitol Hill, Federal Emergency Management Agency Administrator Peter Grainer is testifying before a House Committee on Homeland Security. He says the agency is prepared to deal with both COVID-19 and the upcoming hurricane season simultaneously. You are up to date, Kelly. That's the news update. Back to you. All right, Sue. Thank you. Spotify hits a high note. Can Snap snap back? And pro sports tries to move into the safe zone. All that and more is coming up in today's edition of Rapid Fire. The exchange is back in two. Stay with us. Welcome back. It's that time. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. And here to dig into the headlines for us are Julia Borston, Eric Chemi, and Seema Modi. Welcome, everybody. We're going to start with shares of Spotify today, which are higher after they inked a big licensing deal with Universal Music Group, the world's largest record company. The deal <coughs> includes Spotify access to Universal's star-studded music catalog. That means Lady Gaga, Drake, Taylor Swift. It also, and this is kind of interesting, it adds the label to its two-sided marketplace, and that means the labels will potentially pay Spotify for marketing, data, and analytics tools. Julia, the shares are up about 6% today, and they doubled in the past three months alone. That's crazy. They've been up to so much lately. Absolutely. And I think this really speaks to the long-term potential of Spotify. It's not just a subscription business. It's not just ad-supported. This is an opportunity here for them also to be generating revenue from the music labels. And I think it's really interesting to note here that this label, Universal, will be able to use Spotify to promote its artists. So when you look at a time when there are no concerts, that revenue stream has dried up. It's really important to be able to use Spotify to perhaps drive sales of other things, whether it's merchandise or eventually down the line concert tickets. Spotify, Eric, seems to be in that privileged place where the more they spend, the happier investors are. Like they buy the Joe Rogan podcast and all that. People are thrilled and they're doing this, this deal and people, they just can't get enough. Right, because they're clearly in growth mode right now. They've said that to investors. We're going to focus on growth, investing in that, and not necessarily on making a profit. They're still a very young company when you think about this modern age and you think about 
what it used to be a few years ago, but the current Spotify has a long way to go in terms of getting all this content on this platform. Because otherwise, think about a couple years ago, everyone was kind of the same. One streamer versus another was the same. I could get everything everywhere. But now if I can only get certain things on certain places, then maybe I want to give them my 10 bucks a month and not a competitor. I agree. Because Seema, for me right now, you know, without a lot of, you know, just I need just something on. I don't really care where it comes from. Yeah. And with Apple pouring billions into its music streaming platform, this is certainly seems like a deal that will allow Spotify to expand its subscriber base. I mean, in general, any deal that involves Taylor Swift, I think, is a win. She's not just a musical <laughs> artist. She is an icon and someone who has a lot of clout in this industry, Kelly. Remember, it was in 2014 when Taylor Swift famously removed her content off of Spotify. And then after a couple of meetings with CEO Daniel Ek, he actually flew to Nashville, Nashville from Sweden, <laughs> finally convinced her to uh, bring Is that music back Is it just me? On. It's probably just... Has it been a little quiet on the Taylor Swift front lately? Is she working on a new album or something? Maybe Julia has the answer to that. Maybe it's a pandemic. Who knows? <laughs> she must be. She must be. It's never quiet on the Taylor Swift front. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure you need to... To follow T Swift on, on on Instagram, Kelly, we'll, we'll catch you up. That's true. That's true. That would certainly work. All right, let's move on to shares of Snapchat, which are going the other way today. They're sliding after they po- posted disappointing results for the second quarter. At least one Wall Street firm is bullish on their 17% growth in daily active users. Oppenheimer hiked its price target by $10 a share to 28 and maintained its outperform. They're saying it's because Snapchat dominates the 13 to 34 year old demographic and shares remain at a discount compared to other rival companies. Seema, they are, they did see a big, you know, increase in users from last year, but I don't know. It's still pretty modest quarter to quarter. I guess. I mean, there is this temptation to look at the stock performance of Snap and say, all right, not a great quarter. But to your point, sales grew 17 percent. User engagement is up, just perhaps not as much as Wall Street was expecting. And if you take a look at a longer term chart of Snap, up about 200 percent from its recent low. So perhaps just giving back some of those gains. I wonder if the heat that TikTok is under from U.S. lawmakers, as well as other countries. Remember, India banned the Chinese tech company just a couple weeks ago because of censorship issues. If that creates a window of opportunity for Snap to win back some of that teen audience it lost to to TikTok. Yeah, it's true, Julia. I mean, TikTok is definitely kind of the place to be for teens. By the way, though, I just deleted it from my phone. I did. I I read the stories and I felt like TikTok I'm talking about, not Snap. I've never even had Snap. But anyway, go ahead. (laughs) Well, and Kelly, that's a real question. Um, you know, Snap said that it added 9 million users in daily active users in the second quarter, but it's only forecasting the addition of between 4 million and 6 million in the third quarter. And there is some question of whether that declining user growth is a function of the popularity of TikTok. So that's a really interesting one to watch. But to the question of the value of Snap, it's worth noting that Snap's uh, average revenue per user is $1.91. So that's 10 cents better than expected, but also much lower than say what a Facebook earns on its user base. So it could be an opportunity there, especially as Snap continues to expand into this direct response advertising and also the opportunity around e-commerce. Yeah. And Eric, I am curious because the you know, kind of look to the sports world, too. I remember when I think it was the NFL made a big splash on TikTok probably six or nine months ago now. And with all those seasons gearing up, is that are they going to go to that as like the platform to be? Or do they feel like, well, maybe that, you know, maybe we need to kind of back off. I, I think all these platforms are helpful for them right now because you can't get people in stadiums. So the more they can do on social, the more that's better. A lot of these athletes, they've got big presences out there, too. But it's interesting with with a company like Snap, because 13 to 34, the demographic that they mentioned, 
a 34-year-old is very different from a 13-year-old. I think we know that. <laughs> That's a parent and a kid, basically, at that point, that difference. Uh, so who are these daily active users, these monthly active users, who those are? Are you getting a lot of 30-year-olds getting on this platform? Are you getting their parents? Are you getting a bunch of 14-year-olds? That is a big difference. So it's, it's not just the number of users you're getting. It's the kind of users that you're actually getting. True. I don't think they disclose that level of detail yet. But maybe- That's what I want to know. Yeah. That's what I want to know. <laughs> maybe in the future. All right. Let's talk about what's going on with the retail stocks today. It's a case of two or actually really three different stories. There are shares of Best Buy, which are surging after they reported a bounce back in second quarter sales, a 250 percent jump in online sales from a year ago. And the other the shares, by the way, are up nearly 8 percent right now. On the other hand, shares of Kohl's and Macy's are plummeting after UBS downgraded both stocks to sell. That firm saying those companies can no longer depend on mall traffic or third party sellers to drive growth. And their go-it-alone moment has arrived. Uh, Coles and Macy's are both down. SEMA about 60% this year. Yeah, the pandemic really uh, creating this differentiation between the winners and losers as we're slowly seeing through this earnings season with Best Buy, a big box retailer that a couple of years ago struggled with its omni-channel uh, presence and competition with Amazon, now winning hitting an all-time high and actually doing better during the pandemic where it saw sales rise. I guess it speaks to how more people sheltering at home. They want to maximize that experience at home, buying those TVs, upgrading them, coffee machines. What else do you buy at Best Buy? A sound, uh, a sound right. base, I guess, a sound system, <laughs> Eric? Uh, kitchen appliances. That's what I was surprised about. I didn't realize. I haven't been into Best Buy in a long time. Uh, Best Buy is, is one of those stores that you didn't know that would still be around, that would still be to be so great these days, right? Because you think I can get all of this stuff online. I don't know why anyone needs to go to the store. They also make a lot of money selling the candy right there by the checkout line, but obviously that hasn't been as big (laughs) in recent times. What were you going to say, Julia? Oh, I was just going to say, that's exactly it. The strength and the technology, the fact that it is selling TVs. You know, we bought a new TV. We've bought bought a number of different devices to help our work at home experience in my family, whether it's the cords or the chargers or, you know, the kind of things that Best Buy sells. And I think the fact that you can order, you can pick up same day, that's the kind of thing that is really giving Best Buy an advantage. And in contrast, you have the department stores. People aren't going out to malls. And then the fact that people don't need to buy clothes, they don't need to buy pants for the Zoom world that we live in. To me, this is a story of the two different kinds of retailers, those that are benefiting from work from home and those that are suffering from 100%. it. 100%. Costco, another great place to get electronics. <laughs> Got a laptop there this year. Uh, they don't have everything, though. Okay, finally, taking the term contact sports to a whole new level, both the NFL and the NBA are calling on one under-the-radar tech firm to monitor their social distancing and their contact tracing as players return to action. Eric, you've been following this story for us, and I wonder if this device could come to other parts of the business world, not just sports. Oh, absolutely. So the company, the word spelled with a K and an X, right? It's connection. You probably say it like Connexon. It's a German company, usually doing performance trackers for a lot of these pro sports leagues. They pivoted their their little chip devices in recent months because of coronavirus. It's the size of an Apple earbud case or a little TikTok pack. So it's pretty small and it's going to be used in the NBA and the NFL. In the NFL, it'll be mandatory for everybody, including players. It'll even be in Embedded in their shoulder pads during games. So when you're coming into team facilities, you're playing games. The whole idea is if you get too close to other people, it'll beep or it'll silently, let's say, keep track of who you got close to. And then they can use this to figure out 
if you have COVID, who did you get close to in the past five days, 14 days, whatever that is. And in the NBA's case, it's optional for players, but everyone else in that bubble, they will have it as well. You can even just slide it into your ID card, your ID badge holder, for example. So again, this could apply to any workplace. It's not just a pro That's what I thing. think. Totally. I mean, mm-hmm. so one more question, though. Are they going to require people to wear this all hours? Because if they do, that's super creepy. And if they don't, well, you're missing a huge batch of information and potential contact so, if you're trying to so figure this in, out. In the NFL case, it seems that you would get this upon checking into your workplace and, and then you would give it back to them at the end of the day and they would disinfect it. But every organization, just forgetting these sports, any, any company could have their own rules for how they want to do this. Usually it's hard to enforce someone to wear something when they're not on the job. Yeah. Generally, these are on-the-clock type of things. And to be clear, these are not GPS trackers. These are just proximity trackers. So if we're very close to each other right here or very close to each other 100 miles from now, you would just know you're just a few feet away from the other I person. I think Julia can't wait to wear one. I cannot wait. If I ever leave my house again, I will definitely want to have one of these devices. I think it'll be invaluable just to be able to understand who you've been in proximity with. The longer this pandemic drags on, the more important it will be to have this technology and eventually have it on our phones, have it accessible so people you could turn it on and off if you're leaving your house and know who you might have been exposed to. I'm too paranoid. Seema, would you do it? Well, the two companies to watch here, Strong Arm Technologies and then Honeywell, a publicly listed company that reports earnings tomorrow, they all also have a sensor to what Eric was saying that not only monitors physical distancing, but also wow. it regulates your body temperature. So this idea of wearable sensors certainly gaining traction as more people 100%. return to 100%. Thank you all. Great stuff today. Julia Borson, Eric Chemi, Seema Modi for Rapid Fire. Coming up with COVID cases continuing to spike and the extra $600 unemployment benefit set to run out next week. We'll look at what CEOs are hoping for in the next round of stimulus. As we head to break, here's a look at precious metals. Gold is at a high we haven't seen in nine years today. Silver at a Six-year high. We're back in two. Welcome back. The extra $600 weekly unemployment benefit will finish at the end of next week if Congress doesn't take action first. Some have argued that enhancement is encouraging people from getting back to work. Rahel Solomon joins me now with more on the path forward for workers. Rahel. Hi, Kelly. So we asked each state if they track refusals to work. Most that responded say they do not, but at least half a dozen do. Alaska, for example, says that since March, it's allowed almost 1,100 refusals to work and denied benefits to just 7 percent of those. Colorado reports 3,900 refusals, but only denied about 17 percent of those. Nebraska reports 400 refusals, Utah 350. So Georgia says that they've had 3,700 reported refusals, and they actually tell us that some people are citing as a reason making more at home than at work. That, by the way, is not an acceptable response and will most likely get you kicked off unemployment. There is research that suggests two-thirds of those on unemployment are making more than their prior earnings. But here's the thing. We know that last month, 4.8 million jobs were added. So these numbers for refusals are really just a fraction of the millions of people returning to work. And guys, the thorny issue is that there are suitable reasons due to COVID to refuse work, one of which is your health. If your doctor tells you you're immunocompromised, you can turn down a job offer. Another is lack of child care because schools, of course, are still closed. Both of those things, by the way, still very much concerns for people 
with many schools choosing not to reopen in the fall and spikes still flaring up around the country, guys. All right, Rahel, thank you. Rahel Solomon. And as those cases spike, as that spike holds the reopening of economies, I should say, Congress is considering another round of stimulus to bolster the economy. CEOs weighing in on that debate with some suggestions on what should be included in the next bill. Joining me now is Steve Odlin. He's president and CEO of the conference board and a CNBC contributor. Steve, it always sounds a little sinister if we say, here's what the CEOs are telling Congress they want. But we're fundamentally talking about what they think can get America back up and running as quickly as possible, right? That's right. And CEOs are Americans and they want what most Americans want. They've got you know, a few objectives here. First of all, they want to beat the pandemic. They want to defeat this thing, get it behind us, rip the Band-Aid off, do what needs to be done. If we need testing, if we need masks, if we need to close, do what needs to be done, but let's get it behind us. They cannot have uncertainty. Second thing is they want to provide relief to citizens and economic sectors that continue to be adversely affected. If you don't provide that form of relief, you're going to create a demand-based recession because there won't be the ability to re-engage. Third thing is we want to get back to work. America needs to work responsibly, safety, safely, but you've got to shift the responsibility for growth from the government back to the private sector where it belongs. And, you know, Kelly, we've talked about this before, but there's a lot of concern about bankruptcies. You have these zombie companies living off of the government life support, running around half dead. There are thousands of these. A lot of, a lot of them are small. But whatever it is, we got to get people back to work. Yeah. I think it, it's interesting here that these CEOs generally favor extending the extra unemployment benefits. And that's because they think it would hurt the economy more to, to stop them than it would hurt their own ability to get people back to work. Well, there is a concern, as we said, as you said before, about the amount. And so the CEOs would like to see the amount reduced. They'd like to see it scaled uh, to means. Right now, I think the numbers I think that you just put up are are what everybody's quoting. The two-thirds of the folks are making more by staying at home that they were, than they are at work. And I think that the, the, you know, the numbers are being underreported. So you, know, you, can't, you can't hire people in restaurants today because they'd rather stay at home. So one of the things is that you've got you've to do this short term and, and get us through this thing. Second thing is there need to be a limits on liability. How can you open a company if you're just going to get sued? And if you talk to trial attorneys, they're lining up here waiting to, to sue companies. You also need to extend the Paycheck Protection Program, especially for smaller business and minority-owned businesses that are the most vulnerable. And then the final thing is child support and early childhood. These are small businesses unto themselves, and they have been killed through this because they haven't been allowed to open. No, I mean, we experienced this firsthand trying to figure out take them to daycare, don't take them, take them to daycare, and so forth. There's one other thing in here that, that is interesting, and it's you guys are pushing for those PPP loans. You know, we're talking a lot about big business, but this is interesting to me. PPP loans of less than $150,000, you think, should be forgiven. Why is that? Well, you know, it, the, the problem is when these small businesses come back, they will have to rehire, they will have to reinvest, they will have to increase their operating costs for, for cleaning, you know, well beyond anything that they've ever done before. It's a small portion of costs on a big business, but for a small business, it's a high proportion. So the idea here is, you know, the PPPs are being forgiven, right, uh, up to this point, um, you know, if, if it's used for payroll and operating expenses. We're just saying continue to do that because it puts people back into a footing where they can go back into business. Otherwise, they're going to have to get other loans to cover these loans or take out credit card. It, it just is going to you know, create bankruptcies. And we, we have to get beyond that. There's a lot of stuff going on here that is being artificially buoyed by the government transfers to households. We've had a $3 trillion annualized rate 
uh, since COVID started. And you've got delinquency rates on loans and properties and so forth. So uh, if you delete those government transfers, personal income is actually down 30 percent versus pre-COVID. That's yeah. significant. And we don't want a demand-based recession. Absolutely. Steve, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Steve Odlin with the conference board sharing his thoughts on what should be in the next stimulus package. Still ahead, shares of Chipotle are up slightly ahead of its earnings after the bell today. The street's biggest bull will join us next to discuss what she's watching and why things glitter like guac could be the key to Chipotle's future success. We're back in a couple. Welcome back. Look at shares of Chipotle climbing more than 32 percent in just the past three months. It's been consistently hitting fresh highs of late. They report second quarter earnings after the bell today. Let's bring in Kate Rogers with the key figures to watch. Hi, Kate. Hey, Kelly. Analysts are projecting Chipotle to report EPS of 35 cents on revenues of $1.34 billion. Same store sales are projected to decline 11.9 percent per street consensus. But some analysts think the company will surprise with better than expected comp sales performance thanks to digital sales growth. Digital sales will be a key focus this quarter, as well as commentary around consumer trends during the pandemic. What will those trends look like as cities and states begin to reopen for in-store dining? Chipotle continues to grow its digital footprint with 11.5 million loyalty members last quarter. Pick up shelves in stores and the opening of its 100th Chipotle. Digital stores require a bit more staffing, and as a result, the company announced it will hire some 10,000 workers over the next few months to support that growing part of the business. Kelly, back over to you. All right, Kate. Thank you. Joining me now with her take on all this is the street's biggest bull on Chipotle. Nicole Miller-Reagan is senior research analyst at Piper Sandler. Uh, Nicole, it's good to have you. So first of all, this stock has done so, I mean, who would have thought Chipotle would be a stay-at-home stock? What have they primarily benefited from and can that benefit last no matter what happens with the pandemic? Yeah, this stock is going from recovery and going to absolutely accelerate into growth mode. So we're still very excited about it. It's our highest highest conviction conviction investment recommendation. And it really has been the digital footprint. Thinking about everything pretty much being taken off premise these days, whether that is through the Chipotle or through delivery in the marketplace or through rapid pickup, they're doing $2 million out of those boxes. That can be 50 to 100% more than their peers on a good day. Wow. So tell me about glitter and guac. <laughs> Absolutely. One of the really cool things that we noticed uh, this quarter was management and really the entire team uh, creating access and awareness in the communities that they serve, but beyond their own physical presence. The partnership with ELF was really cool. They met their teen population where they are. They have a Shopify relationship that brings their farmers to their consumers. And I even think um, there's more access points with their expansion uh, in the delivery marketplace. So all around, very cute, cool community presence this quarter. Yeah, I'm excited for the lemonade. But, uh, you know, I do wonder if they need to accelerate some of their product innovation. Cauliflower rice has been uh, tested out. If there needs to just be a little bit more innovation in that category to keep the experience fresh for diners. And if that becomes a drag at all on, you know, that investment or on earnings or anything like that. Well, I think there's we have to see what the consumer really wants right now. That's what the consumer wants. Chipotle can deliver. I think we want a little bit of the sure thing, um, especially right now. That being said, I think it's about the innovations they're going to have and how they'll allow access to those in different platforms. Think about direct delivery as an example, where they've done a great job with a direct relationship 
through their own platform, getting a customer, getting the customer data, that would be a great place to launch a new product. And when they did do it on the digital front, it all hits the second make line, doesn't hit the front make line, and there's, it, it's a very smooth operation all around. Speaking of that, it's interesting, and Kate had pointed this out a few weeks ago, but because of digital, they're having to hire more. You know, I think that's counterintuitive for a lot of people, but in order to keep the process efficient for both digital and in-store, it's labor-intensive. Does that become a longer-term headwind? I don't think a longer-term headwind. I mean, I think it's, it's a practical investment. The Chipotle four-wall economic has always, model has always been centered on uh, leveraging a food cost and making human capital investments. Frankly, you know, the power of, of making those human capital investments and being special at the store level absolutely, you know, is, is shared by employees that interact frontline with the customer. So I think it's a great investment. It doesn't hold back the P&L in any sense because what's happening is those going to be digital, digital dollars that they're going to bring in. And if they're a rapid pickup order, as an example, and even a Chipotle, they can be higher than an in-store um, order at the point of sale. Of course, delivery can be lower, but net-net, they're both growing um, hundreds of percent. And as long as they're both growing around the same levels, you get an equal margin, if not better, even with the labor investment. All right. So you see $14.50 price target, $300 of upside. Anything could derail that this afternoon? Real, real, real quickly, anything that could, be a, could change your mind? Absolutely not. We we love this team. We like what they did for the community. Yeah. We like what they do for employees. Um, and, and we think they'll also talk about a return to flat comp territory. So we think it's going to be a great, clean quarter. Nicole Miller-Reagan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Let you go and prepare for that. Chipotle earnings are after the bell today. And tomorrow, Chipotle CEO Brian Nickel will join us at 1 p.m. in an exclusive interview. He'll talk about the earnings, go into more detail. You definitely don't want to miss it. That does it for us today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.